0: Our Bible reading this morning is um, Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 45, and you can find that in the Pew Bibles if you want to follow along, (coughs) on page 1002. Sorry. The news spreads. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Jesus drives out an evil spirit. be quiet said jesus sternly come out of him the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek the people were all so amazed that they asked each other what is this a new teaching and with authority he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him news about him spread quickly over the whole region of galilee jesus heals many As soon as they had left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak, because they knew who he was. Jesus prays in a solitary place. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed, Simon and his companions went to look for him and when they found him they exclaimed everyone is looking for you Jesus replied let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also that is why I have come so he traveled throughout Galilee preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees if you're willing you can make me clean filled with compassion Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man I am willing he said be clean immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning see that you don't tell this to anyone but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, as we mentioned last week, Mark's gospel really falls into two parts, chapters 1 to 8 and chapters 9 to 16. And what happens in each one should provoke a question. All the things that are happening should make us ask questions. In the first part, 1 to 8, the question we should be asking is, Who is this Jesus? And in the second part, 9 to 16, it's more the focus is on, What is it that he's come to do? Well, the passage that we have before us today... Uh, is one where Jesus begins to display his authority in four ways. His authority over men. We have the call of the first disciples who, after Jesus um, will have uh, died and gone to heaven, they will become the apostles, the foundation of the church. Then there's the authority over men's thinking. He is, Jesus, a teacher first and foremost. That is his authority. very determined priority. Then we see his authority over evil. He has successfully resisted the devil's temptations in the wilderness. He has never sinned, and so he's never been entrapped into the devil's world. And now he is able to liberate other human beings who have been. And then finally, there's authority over sickness by restoring people to health. So first of all, the call of the first disciples. Simon was a very common name in that particular time, and it's a Greek name, and it was uh, used as the the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew Shimon, uh, just simply because it sounds similar. Andreas is also a Greek name and one found in the Jewish Talmud. You see, the area of the Galilee in the north of Israel was an area that had been conquered by Alexander the Great in about the sort of 330s BC. And uh, although it had now been ruled for quite a long time by um, the Romans, it was the Greek culture that was more embedded. So, for example, Greek was the lingua franca, the language of commerce. That's why the New Testament is written in Koine Greek, which means common Greek. It's the language of the people, the language of uh, business. It's really English, really, in the modern-day equivalent. And uh, because the Greek culture had gone deeper, and that's why these guys who are Jews happened to have Greek names. So this uh, this turning of theirs to uh, follow Jesus may look sudden, but that has more to do with Luke's rather succinct, abrupt style. Because if you know Luke, you know that by this time Jesus has performed the miraculous catch of fish before these guys. And so they have time to think. They would have known him. And like any important decision, it would have taken a bit of time. And he now calls them and he will change them. And they in turn will become catchers of men. Fishing and shepherding were very common occupations in the Galilee at that time. Both are used by Jesus to illustrate our Christian ministry. So, fishermen catch fish and shepherds oversee and care for their flock. One gets people into the Christian community and the other looks after them whilst they're in. Well, we're all probably a bit of both. And both are needed, though, of course, the fisherman is foundational. After all, you have to net them before you can nurture them, as someone said. Now, following Jesus through, though, has a cost. The first cost is familial. It affects our family relationships. Jesus later stresses that loyalty to him takes precedence over family relationships. Jesus, though, is very hot on marriage and the family, and it's the foundational relationship for everyone but he must come first. Now, of course, that can cause a tension. When an issue arises where the teaching of Jesus conflicts with the view of some family members, we can be torn. Our love for them is in tension with our loyalty to Jesus. About a decade ago, um, a well-known... Church of England bishop from the evangelical party of uh, the church started to speculate that maybe there may have been more to certain biblical friendships than might at first appear. David and Jonathan in the Old Testament. Jesus and John in the New Testament. Though, of course, there's nothing in the text, to support such speculation. And although John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, the word used there is not eros, from which we get erotic or sexual love, but agape, sacrificial love. Now, I was puzzled, and I wondered, why is this guy sort of doing this? Why is he flying kites without any substance? And it just crossed my mind. I thought, maybe there's somebody in his family for whom, you know, this is an issue. And I mentioned it to somebody else who knows him quite well. And he said, yeah, his brother. It can be difficult, particularly in the area of sexual relationships, where there is a departure from the biblical norm of monogamous, permanent, heterosexual marriage, which is established before the fall, before anything went wrong, Genesis 2:24). A view which is endorsed by Jesus in each of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. There are very few things which are in all three Gospels, but that endorsement of the biblical norm is one of them. It's very important to Jesus. So although we love our nearest and dearest, our loyalty and love for Jesus Christ as our creator and saviour has to come first. After all it's what he made us for and it will be both the best for us and for them to follow. The second area in which it may have been costly was financially, James and John. The sons of Zebedee were also called at this time, and followed Jesus. And they appear to have quite a profitable fishing business. Their servants are mentioned, and leaving their nets to follow this itinerant preacher for the next three years may well have hit their pockets. And it can do today as well. Just reflect on the two visitors we've, or the three visitors we've had over the last week here at church. Last Sunday we welcomed Vernon Wilkins and uh, he's involved in Christian teaching in the Middle East. Vernon was a senior teacher at Winchester College before he was ordained. That's one of the most prestigious public schools in the country. Well paid, no doubt, but he now simply lives on what Christians give him to support him doing his work in Amman. Derek and Narina Harborne were with us on Wednesday evening They're working in Mbahara in Uganda and they've retired early from their NHS jobs as a consultant and as a biochemist to go and serve in Africa at their own expense. You see, Jesus then and now exercises authority over the lives of men and women that he calls and it can be costly in many different ways to follow him. Secondly, there's Jesus' authority as a teacher. Sixteen times in Mark's Gospel, Jesus is is found teaching, and eleven times he's called a teacher. Remember the question that Jesus is provoking people to ask Who is this man? What has he come to do? And the answers will turn out to be that he is God. That he has come to save us from our sins so that we might enjoy eternal life with him, a life that can begin now and will be perfected in the next life. And so teaching for him this message is the priority at this particular stage of his ministry. And it explains why he acts the way he does. So, for example, in verse 38... After healing many people the previous evening, the crowds on early Sunday morning are now searching for him so they can have their sicknesses cured and those of their dear friends and relatives. And what does he say? Let's go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach to them also. That is why I have come. And that also explains why in verse 45, for example, after healing the man of leprosy, he tells and he issues a strong warning, Mark records, that the man was not to tell anybody what had happened except the priest for whom he had to um, go and make sacrifices and to be a witness. So there, the religious hierarchy will get to hear what has happened. He does not want the crowds to flock around him as if he's some kind of roving first-century health centre. Now, many medical missionaries um, have reported the same problem. Some who are qualified medics, but who've gone somewhere in a teaching or an evangelistic role, don't even let it be known that they are a qualified doctor, because they know only too well that the urgent people's health will take precedence over the more important, their eternal salvation, life with God. The brief time I had with Derek on Wednesday, he mentioned that he might, after 2017, when his current kind of um, assignment would naturally come to an end, that he might go um, with Narina to an area of the world where his medical qualifications they're not the uk ones are not recognised in those places why you might think well probably because he wants to do the work of the evangelist and pastor teacher to a people group that has either none or very little exposure to the christian faith In verse 22, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. I read once of an academic um, this particular comment. He said, most academics, uh, both then in the ancient world and now in the modern world, merely rearrange what others have written. Occasionally, he says, you get someone with great originality and all the people go, wow. And that's what happened here with Jesus. He was speaking from his own authority. He was the originator of what he was teaching. So, we've seen authority over the lives of men and women, authority over the thinking of men and women, and now we turn to his authority over evil spirits and over sickness. So Jesus' authority, 23 to 28, over evil spirits. Now this, of course, is an area where we're both unfamiliar and puzzled by. So we could do well to heed the words of C.S. Lewis, who at the start of his classic, The Screwtape Letters, warns us, that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe, and so to feel uh, an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Now, among those who disbelieve would be Sigmund Freud, the psychoanalyst from the earliest, early parts of the 20th century, Freud thought that demons, repre- quote, represent bad and reprehensible wishes, derivations of instinctual impulses that have been repudiated and repressed. Some professing Christians are sceptical, largely because they don't see any evidence of it today. And uh, so they conclude there's really no such spiritual world involving angels and fallen, uh, and fallen angels, demons. And they would argue that either in Jesus' day, Jesus was a man of his time and he knew no better, in other words, he was ignorant, or he did know better, but he went along with the erroneous worldview of his day. Now, of course, those possible ways of explaining it lead you to much bigger problems if jesus didn't know that he was wrong that would lead us to question his divinity if on the other hand he knew that the worldview of his day was wrong and he simply went along with it rather than correcting it that would lead us to question his integrity I don't find that either of those square with the Jesus revealed in the New Testament. Of course, there have been some Christians who go way, way over the top and they see demons all over the place. The medieval church, for example, reckoned there were 7,405,926 different varieties of demons. Frank Hammond, in a book called The Pigs in the Parlour, speculated there were demons of all sorts of things, cancer, heart attacks, senility, daydreaming even. There was a fad in the 1980s called Territorial Spirits where there was the thought that there was a specific demon assigned to each nation and ethnic group. But there's no evidence in the Bible uh, for these kind of excessive and obsessional views. But can we make any headway in understanding Jesus' authority over evil spirits. As always, in kind of difficult questions, I've learnt to trust and find plausible the explanations proffered by the late John Stott, which are biblical and plausible. In one of his books, he mentions the observation that in Scripture Just as miracles only pop up in certain periods, such as around the Exodus with Moses, Elijah and Elisha, uh, Jesus and the apostles, so to what you might call these kind of encounters. You know, there is this battle between God and if the the devil played out through Moses and Pharaoh. There is Elijah and his contest with the prophets of Baal. And here, God in Jesus, this is what provokes the satanic outburst in reaction. These contests, particularly in the gospel, provide us with a window into the spiritual world of the sun and Satan and of angels and devils. A spiritual world which is real, but which is unseen but for a time, is seen. So it's there, but we can't see it. But when Jesus was around, it was a much more public conflict. The visible became, or rather the invisible, became visible for a time. Because where the forces of God are out in the open, so the forces of the devil come out into the open. It's not too difficult to see what is happening if we draw from the rest of scripture as a whole. There is God, the Holy Trinity. And before they created us, on earth as it were, they created spiritual beings called angels. Now some of those angels, led by one variously named Satan, Beelzebub, the devil, the prince of this world, rebelled against God and his rule. And once God had created life on this particular planet and human beings emerged into existence, then the devil set about inciting them to rebellion by tempting them into sin. And sin they did. Sin which promised much, but which delivered only death. And they became entrapped. Not in God's world in paradise. They were expelled from that but in the world ruled by the prince of this world. A world both now and in the future, bereft of God. Now in a sense, all human beings are now born into that world, the world of the prince of this world. We are trapped by nature. We are blinded by the truth. We are kept in the dark. We are unable to free ourselves from this captivity. And then Jesus pitches up and he enlightens us to the true spiritual reality. We see the world as it really is, not as we have previously thought. And he is also able to liberate us from that world that we realise that we're in, because he defeated the devil. He defeated the devil because he himself never sinned, and he was therefore able to be a perfect substitute for human beings as a sacrifice for our sins. God could then be in a position to forgive us because his justice had been satisfied, and the devil therefore had no claim on us anymore. The jail in which we had been locked up had been opened and all we have to do is push the door to get out. Now the devil sees this coming in Jesus, which is why through various individuals, this guy in the synagogue for example, reacts strongly against what Jesus is teaching. And Jesus, to demonstrate the reality of the spiritual battle that's going on, liberates this man from his spiritual imprisonment. And he repeats it in the lives of others. Jesus has the authority to do so, and it is done. The man moves from the kingdom of the prince of this world to the kingdom of God. He transfers from a blind allegiance to Satan to a clear-sighted allegiance to Christ. Now we may not see this spiritual battle played out in public in the way in which it was public in Jesus' day, but the reality is there, though it's unseen. Now, I'm not sure that that's all one could say about this matter, but it's where I've got to, and I hope that uh, it'll be helpful as you discuss it in your house groups in the week ahead. And then finally, Jesus's authority over sickness. There's his healing of Simon's mother-in-law, 29 to 31. There are the crowds later that evening, 32. And there is the man with leprosy, 40 to 45. Now, Jesus clearly did perform miracles. That's what he had a reputation for. There are recorded, I think, at least 34 occasions recorded in the Gospels when he did so. And while some of them are to individuals, many of them are multiple miracles. In fact, his opponents, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, never disputed that he did miracles. Well they couldn't. If you've got somebody who's kind of got a stump of a hand as a consequence of, say, leprosy, and you know and they had all their you know and then suddenly their fingers kind of appear like that. There is no alternative explanation. It is supernatural. So the only way out is either you accept that Jesus is divine and he's behind it all. Or of course you ascribe it to a malevolent force rather than to a benign one. You ascribe it to the devil, which is exactly what they did. Jesus' miracles aren't random, they are performed for a purpose. People were meant to ask, who can control nature like he controlled the storm instantly? Who can bring somebody like Lazarus who's been dead for three days back to life? Who can instantly and completely restore to full health someone with a very obvious, often a long-term sickness, by just a few words? And who has obvious authority over evil, so publicly displayed? We're not talking about amazing answers to prayer here, situations where there's a degree of ambiguity we would say it's a providential answer to prayer, the unbeliever would say just coincidence. We're not talking about those kind of things, we're talking about incidents where people were often long-term ill, like that paralytic who had been crippled from birth, who everybody knew, who sat at the temple gate, and that guy is straightened out as quick as I click my fingers, for all to see Somebody who is obviously ill, like if you had leprosy, then you know you lose sensation in your uh, fingers and feet, and you'll touch things and uh, you won't feel the pain, and so they're damaged before you realise it. They are quite badly deformed, and yet they're instantly straightened out. And here Jesus restores these man's damaged digits instantly and completely right in front of the eyes of hundreds of witnesses, not just once, but time and time again he did this, often involving multiple miracles on many of these occasions. So in answer to the question, who can do such things, the answer is really only God. So who does that make Jesus? But as well as identifying Jesus, the miracles also illustrate what he came to do. His authority over nature indicates his power to recreate the universe at the end of time, when there's a new heaven and a new earth. His authority over sickness, that is power to make people whole again. Well, that is ultimately fulfilled when there is the new creation. His authority over evil forces that have entrapped human beings, but who can now be liberated and set free by Jesus. These miracles are meant for us to identify who Jesus is, to understand that he's come to save us from the situation that we're in, that we can be forgiven and be granted access to God in person in personal relationships so that we might secure the chance and be saved for eternal life i had a card about 10 days ago from china from jonathan you may remember jonathan was with us for about 2 years and uh, he was when he was over here with his chinese company and he was with his wife Before he came to the UK, his grandmother had told him that he must go and find a church. And so he did what his grandmother said, and he found us. But more significantly, he found Christ. And you might remember that just over a year ago, he was baptised and confirmed in December 2013, and then returned to China within a month with his company. And here's his message. He says, Dear Clive, During this year, with the help of our Lord, I had largely enhanced my faith in him and live in a peaceful and joyful Christianity life. Please share my testimony to all brothers and sisters in St Mary's Church and help me to show my appreciation to all who helped to build my Christianity faith in the wonderful time in Basingstoke. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, Jonathan and Linda and since he's been back in china his wife linda who had quite limited english has also embraced the faith two people who have recognized who jesus is that what he's done and have responded accordingly in the only way that we should let's pray Heavenly Father, we thank you for making yourself so very clear to us in human form in the person of Jesus. We thank you that uh, there were those there, hundreds and hundreds of people, who witnessed what he said and did, and that has been passed down to us a faithful record so that through that record we can engage with Jesus ourselves personally. So may we understand this so that we can effectively communicate it. Amen.